0: Hello and welcome to the West Connect podcast, where we help ensure that student athletes are successful on and off the field. Today, I'm excited to have Ralph Savarese with us today. Ralph, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us. we Appreciate it. Um, so, let's start with maybe, you, you know, I, I know on the pre call you mentioned you had siblings that were also, also athletes. Um, how did you yourself, uh, you know, get to Wesleyan originally?
1: So it's a good question. Um, I was initially, as a high school senior, thinking about D1 programs and more serious tennis. I had two siblings who played at Dartmouth. Um, and when I went on a college tour, I remember somebody at my high school, w- one of the guidance counselor folks said, you should look at this school. And I remember on the tour, I um, a number of the male students on campus were wearing skirts. And I was intrigued because my family was particularly rigid and conservative. And I sensed without knowing much that that was not where I would end up with my own sense of the world and politics. And I, at the time, Don Long was the coach. Um, and I knew Don was a really good tennis player himself. In fact, we battled uh, against one another for almost 25 years after I graduated from, uh, from Wesleyan. He's such a good athlete. So, uh, you know what, almost on a whim, I said, I think this is the place for me. And I would say this, I would say at the time, certainly not now, tennis under Mike Freed is amazing at, at Wesleyan. But at the time, I worried that Wesleyan wouldn't push me enough on the tennis court. I'd say that was probably true, but when I put the whole package of what I was trying to do together, I found Wesleyan to be just a wonderful place because I grew in so many, so many ways.
0: Yeah, and and I know that the tennis program in recent years has really increased pretty dramatically, at least the women's program. Um, I'm not sure about the men's, but it's great to see it kind of... Um, do all the things that it's been doing a lot of hard work by alums like you that put in uh, years of, of, of the work on the court uh, to get where we are today. And what was that experience like being a tennis player at Wesleyan at that time?
1: So um, the men's team, by the way, I mean, the women's team has has had so much notoriety from their number one player who won the, the NCAA division threes four times. Um, but the men's team has been very successful, especially Compared to when I was at Wesleyan, um, what was great was that Wesleyan was so relaxed about uh, about sports, and which was such a refreshing change for me. Because I remember in high school I was one of those wildly overscheduled young athletes, and my mom was chauffeuring me around to this tennis practice, you know, that tennis practice, this tournament, that tournament, this national tournament, and I. You know, I had an ambivalent relationship, I think, through high school uh, with intense competition. So the fact that Wesleyan was relaxed and that on a tennis court, I might at the changeover talk with somebody about Hegel or Kant or Dostoevsky was an astonishing thing to me. Because I remember traveling with other high school, really good high school uh, athletes, and I'm reading Something they think is too intellectual, and really getting mercilessly um, ribbed about it. And so Wesleyan was my first experience of putting sports and all things intellectual together, and that that really was an enormous gift. And I've uh, over the years recognized what a gift that was.
0: Yeah, and I know that um, you know the lacrosse program, the men's lacrosse program has increased dramatically since, uh, since I've been gone, and, and I'm I'm an of, of an age now in my late 30s where I've got peers who are, you know, considering their children looking to play college athletics and college lacrosse, and I always reinforce to them that, you know, lacrosse is terrific, probably not a great career long-term. Your child should enjoy, you know, the NISCAC is a great conference, super competitive, a lot of fun, a lot of tradition. They'll have a nice time, but um, you know, they'll also have that balance between social and academia, which I I think is crucial, um, for developmental, um, progress at that age. Um, so, you, you know, you're in this world of academia, which we haven't, we have, we've, we've done one, I think marine biologist who is maybe similar, but, but this is different. Maybe talk about your transition after school, what you first did, um, that led you to, you know, your position today.
1: So um, I continued to play some pretty serious tennis, and I moved after graduation. I mean, I, I I taught for three years at Deerfield Academy and coached the tennis team there. That was a great experience. I learned a lot about teaching. I recognize- how, did you, how
0: did you get that first? Uh, how did you land that first job? Do you remember?
1: So I do remember. Um, so my senior year, the same weekend that the NESCAT championships the same time was the Irene Glasgow National Intercollegiate Poetry Competition, and I was in both. And at any other school, the coach would not have allowed me, as the number one player, to be preoccupied. Um, and so, the uh, the Irene Glasgow uh, Poetry Championships was at Mount Holyoke, and the Nescats were at Middlebury, which is no quick drive. And I ended up losing, I was seated number one, Um, I ended up losing in tennis, probably because I was preoccupied and thinking, how am I going to get to uh, Mount Holyoke? But the coach, Don Long, was terrific about this. And I ended up winning, co-winning the National Intercollegiate Poetry Competition. One of the judges was Seamus Heaney, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in the audience were members of the Deerfield Academy. English department who knew I had applied and were secretly interviewing me before I even knew they were interested in my candidacy. And now so That's
0: a cool story. And that and that could only happen at Wesleyan, right? Somebody who's in the Nescac Tennis Championships but also in this renowned poetry competition judged by an author who, you know, famously translated Beowulf um in in, in you know later in his career who I'm a College of Letters graduate. We read that version uh, when I was in COL, probably sophomore year. So that's wild.
1: No, you know, it, it really is. And that, that, you're absolutely right. That's, that's Wesleyan in a nutshell. And I really, and I looked at, you know, you know my, my brother and sister played at Dartmouth, you know, high level division one, but not the highest. And even at Dartmouth, tennis consumed 90%. Of their college experience, and I think it had an effect on them. And so, to me, being able to piece together a kind of holistic, intensely satisfying, in different ways, kind of life was was hugely important for me.
0: That's great. Um, I'm glad I asked you how you landed that job. That's an that's an awesome story. I uh, love that. So, what what happened next? What happened after after Deerfield? So,
1: so, yeah. So after I taught at Deerfield Academy. Um, I I lived in Poland, Uh, I had, I took a bunch of Russian lit courses, terrific professor named Priscilla Meyer, my undergraduate advisor was FD Reeve, who was also in the College of Letters, and I just became increasingly fascinated by um, the political movements in Eastern Europe, and so um, I taught, lived for a year and taught for another year at Adam Mickiewicz University in Western Poland and actually thought I was gonna get a PhD in Slavic studies. But as I'm over there, the world is changing. The communists are collapsing. And suddenly the funding for a PhD in Slavic studies was dramatically cut because little old naive me didn't understand that half the people with PhDs in Slavic studies were going into the foreign service or working for the CIA. And the country also naively imagined that we didn't need as many experts on that region. So I retooled, went to Florida, got an MFA in creative writing, partly, if not mostly, to continue playing tennis and to see whether in a warm climate, I could go even even farther with my tennis. And I did. I mean, I was really happy about that experience. Ended up staying in Florida, got a PhD in English, um, met the boy, six-year-old boy, I adopted from foster care. So this is another one of those stories where things led to things that led to other things that I don't know whether would have been possible um, with a different kind of life.
0: Yeah, we we hear that moments of serendipity often in these conversations that lead to, um, and, and, and important to also reinforce that we talk about this a lot, especially athletes have a, have a sense that there's going to be this linear path and it never is that way or rarely is that way. And it's always a zig and a zag that, that, that and then that continues on throughout your professional career. Um, so what happened after the the time in Florida?
1: So, um, you know, the, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, but the, you know, the market for humanities PhDs is just ferocious. So it wasn't clear that I would get a tenure track position. It wasn't clear that I would get a tenure track position in a place I wanted to live. Um, it wasn't clear that I could uh, fully reconcile my own work ambitions with my wife's work ambitions. It wasn't clear what would be best for this boy. I adopted a six-year-old boy, very badly traumatized what were his needs? And so I was actually imagining that I might stay in Florida. My wife had a good job at a Center for Autism and Related Disabilities. I was working as a tennis pro, doing lots of writing, renovating houses. Meanwhile, I'm applying because I got this thing called a PhD. I'm in theory uh, certified, as it were. And I got pretty lucky in that I got a job at Grinnell College, a school very much like Wesleyan in in Iowa, in the Midwest, very well endowed school. I mean, $2.1 billion endowment, very progressive, politically conscious, and fully devoted to the humanities.
0: And so what is the actual position, title, focus that you have at Grinnell?
1: So I am now a full professor of English in the English department. I teach 19th and 20th century American literature, creative writing, and disability studies. And so, I mean, it's the ideal job. If someone had said to me, this would all work out as well as it has worked out, including my evolving relationship with the state of Iowa. Because I, I you know, I grew up, uh, Washington, D.C., Manhattan, this, this idea of being not just in the Midwest, but in the rural Midwest took some getting used to it, and the winters are like nothing you've ever seen. I mean,
0: yeah, um, I've spent some time in in you know uh, Central America, as some people refer to it as, and uh, it is a wonderful place to be, but it certainly is different. But what an incredible school, obviously, the comparisons to, to and I think we're all familiar with. Grinnell obviously is in a very similar position, and you know um, the Iowa uh, Iowa Writers' Workshop, um, right, is you know very well known and renowned uh, place where a lot of incredible authors have come out of. So um, interesting, and and I guess where I'd like to take the conversation next is because my wife also is a Western graduate; she got her master's um, in education and then a PhD at Vanderbilt. And during her tenure, um, even that road to academia has changed so dramatically. And and I'm certain for you as well, if somebody listening is interested in maybe pursuing that path, what does it actually look like today? Because, you know, federal funding has, has scaled back dramatically, even from the Obama administration, I know.
1: Yeah. And so the pandemic has has wildly exacerbated trends that were already beyond frightening for, for people who are hoping to become, let's say, a professor. They, they were at Wesleyan, they looked at, at their own professors. I wanna do that one day. So it's really, really challenging and competitive. The one thing I think that helped me was not going immediately, not right after undergrad, you know, waiting uh, five almost five years to even start a master's degree. So I had a better sense of, a range of things I could end up doing if this particular dream didn't work out. I also think what we were talking about earlier, these different facets of a life that can serendipitously come together. It just so happens when I adopted my son, who's autistic, and as I told you, became Oberlin College's first non-speaking graduate with autism. Uh, that disability studies as an interdisciplinary field was arising. I could could contribute to that field significantly in distinctive ways that that marked me less as a grad student with tons of potential or a recent PhD with tons of potential and as somebody who's doing interesting things. Because I think that's what I would try to do right now is, I would not imagine that publishing is going to come later. I would be writing and publishing as much as possible. And I would be thinking about ways in which you can mark yourself as distinctive. And and I think think students don't look to their own lives as much as they might. This isn't true of everyone, but I think, you know, there's a problem in imagining that an intellectual life is all over here to the left. And my life where I go to the supermarket is over here to the right. And this life of the mind is not connected or is not fully tethered to this other life that everybody has. I, I That just didn't make sense to me right from the beginning.
0: And what is your, I'm gonna ask you to to prognosticate here because it's more fun. There's been a lot of, of headlines about, you know, the death of the liberal arts education, a lot of these smaller, maybe, you know, um, Less well endowed uh, schools have really struggled with COVID. What do you think the future is for that, you know, trad- you know, well known liberal arts education and the the colleges that you know have that foundation?
1: So I can't tell you the number of friends I have who have already lost their jobs, right? Because even when you have tenure in your contract, it says. Particular kinds of exigencies, for example, getting rid of a whole department or financial burdens that are so that threaten the very existence of the college, they can terminate your contract for those reasons. And so I have any number of friends who've already lost their jobs. And if you read the Chronicle of Higher Ed regularly, you know that the predictions are particularly grim, that without an extraordinary endowment, it's going to be tough to weather a range of things. The pandemic, um, the shifting demographics, far fewer high school students for this kind of next 10 to 12 to 13 year period. But also the way the culture has moved away from having a kind of faith in the application of the skills you learn in a a, a school that emphasizes the liberal arts. What's really interesting to me, though, and there's something like hope hiding in this, that if you listen to CEOs, they want liberal arts college grads. And my own father, who was uh, the managing partner of a huge antitrust law firm, he got so tired of Harvard law grads who couldn't write, because they hadn't gone to a small liberal arts college where the profs um, really spend time individually with you on these on developing essential skills. And so he started just looking not where they went to law school, but where they go undergrad. And he thought that strategy paid off in ways that just attending to, oh, somebody went to Stanford Law. Um, that, that strategy was much better. So, I actually think sadly there's gonna be more of a crisis and then people are gonna go, what are we missing? Like what are young people, what do young people need? And and I'm hoping that enough schools can hang in there and that it's not just strictly wealth-based but enough schools can hang in there that um, there will be some kind of renaissance but it'll probably happen after I retire.
0: Yeah, time will tell. Um, to link it back to our earlier part of the conversation, we've done a lot of of interviews with folks who played team sports, but not a lot of individual. How is that skill set of being a a competitive tennis player on the collegiate level played into your um, you know professional uh, life as a, a professor?
1: So, the first thing I would say is the the great boon of tennis is that you can play singles alone. You can then play doubles, and then there's a team score. And this was especially important for me because I can't tell you how many times we lost seven two where I won both my singles and doubles. I mean, I love my teammates, love them. and if they're if they end up listening to this, i'm not I'm not um you know talking trash about anyone. but that was satisfying to me. And then I think the individual sport, knowing that uh, that I could go off in a direction in my scholarly life, in my writing life, in my personal decisions. I mean, my wife's parents were the only people who said anything positive initially, about our adopting this boy from foster. Everybody's like, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, you got good genes. Uh, why don't you just do it the way everybody else does it? Wesleyan was absolutely a force in, in, in giving me the confidence to think I didn't need to do what other people did. But also that the, that period alone on a tennis court when you're not playing well, it's windy spring in New England, it could be 45 degrees, you're in Poughkeepsie, or you're at West Point. I, we played West Point, and there were guys in their full uniforms in the stand, chanting chicken legs at me. And I remember shaking the guy's hand and saying, it was a pleasure beating you today. Um, that, that you learn a kind of fortitude uh, in that kind of circumstance. And I think that fortitude has really you know helped me in a number of arenas as I've gotten, you know, as I, i made my journey.
0: So as we wrap up here, any advice or words of wisdom that you would give to a, a recent uh, graduate or maybe a current undergraduate athlete, if they, despite the headwinds and some of the issues we discussed are, are focused on this, this life of academia.
1: So, First, more generally, I would say, don't put too much pressure on yourself to resolve the uncertainties that inevitably sort of envelop you in the first five to eight years out, out of, out of Wesleyan. In fact, those uncertainties are generative. And without them, you might get a very predictable life that will end up disappointing you. So you have to sort of have the faith in your own abilities, the skills you've been taught, live with those uncertainties and see um, what emerges from them. Nobody, if somebody had told me half the things I've done with my life that that I was going to do them, I'd say, no way. And I'm so glad I did them. And it's not enough. You yourself are, you're an essential ingredient here, but you need other influences. You need to wrestle with these uncertainties for a path, multiple paths to emerge. And so with respect to academia, I would say it's not impossible have a backup plan, be able to apply the skills you've learned in other arenas. Good writing, the world needs good writing. I can't tell you. I mean, I rewrite rewrite, uh, uh, emails that administrators send me all the time at Grinnell because I can't stand bad writing. Learn how to write well, and you're going to be fine. Yeah,
0: I think to the the conversations we've had with folks that are in similar space as you, it's just be eyes wide open and understand that, like any profession, it changes, right? And and you have to be amenable to that change and open to it. So, final question here: We're going to go into lightning round. Do you still play tennis?
1: I do. I had a hip replacement 10 years ago. Um, I have an autoimmune arthritic uh, disorder. And even with that hip replacement, I was still playing uh, with guys on the men's team and could beat most of them. I mean, they've had a couple of good number one guys. It was a a wonderful young man um, from Latin America uh, who was great uh, and a lot of fun playing with him. But I think those guys have appreciated or used to appreciate that, me my being able to play with them at a level because we're pretty isolated and some of the smaller schools we play at grinnell they don't have the best tennis programs uh, unlike you know at wesleyan you could you could travel an hour and play any number of schools that were just fantastic
0: well it's it is i play i'm a casual club tennis player and it's a ton of fun i like playing doubles because you know i can drink beer and play defense but um the cool the cool part about the sport is. There are some guys in my club who are in their 80s. They still play competitively, and they're just human backboards because they they never out of position, and it's frustrating as hell to the younger guys that are running around. But it's a testament that you can play for a very long time. Um, well, I,
1: I, and I would add just one add one quick thing: the the younger players have grown up with these incredible rackets that produce massive amounts of of power. I'm at Westland. And I play with my first non-wood racket, a Rosignol, that Mats velander played with. And you learn how to do different things with the ball when your equipment is not fantastic. And so I do I do this all the time. I mean, I I you know, I, I would hit nothing but drop shots and lobs and weird spins, and the and the Grinnell guys would say, hit it like a man. I'm like, I'm not gonna beat you that yeah. way.
0: Check the scores. <laughs> so Thank you so much. This is a ton of fun. Um, greatest American novel ever written? What do you got?
1: Moby Dick. Far and away, Moby Dick. And um, I, I've written a ton about that novel. I think people are too scared of it. It's actually very funny. It can be read slowly. Um, it's it, And I think it tells you more about the United States and the history of the United States than any, any book written by an American.
0: I love it. Ralph, thank you so much for the time. This has been a ton of fun. Really appreciate it. And, um, you know, maybe one day we'll see each other in the courts.
1: Yeah. Or, or at Wesleyan. It would be, it would be wonderful. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Take care. Have a good day.
0: Bye.